0: 79 of the see here podcast Morris here speaking in Melbourne and over in Bath is Mr. Bernard Stickwell Hello. Now, you might be missing for a second month in a row, our good compadre and great friend, Mr. Tim Merrill. Tim has got some things going on in his life at the moment. So he will not be joining us until at least February or March of 2021. So uh, you've just got the two of us. Well, actually, we will be getting some special guests along the way. Tim, hope you're enjoying listening to this and you're doing well. So in the meantime, Bernie and I will be carrying on the good work. And what we have for you this time around, we've just done an interview that we're about to present to you with film director Isabelle Venor, who is out of uh, Montreal in Quebec, in Canada. And she has made a fascinating film called Tuning the Brain with Music. We're not going to talk terribly much about it now. You will hear what it is about, but going from the title, I think you can get something of an idea what this documentary is going to be about. And uh, it's a film that we would urge you to follow up with. We'll send some links in the show notes. This is a great conversation. So I guess without any further ado, Here's the trailer, and then we'll be back speaking with Isabel Renault and then Bernard. I will be back at the end of uh, that interview to talk to you about what's happening in episode 80 of C here.
1: The brain is a complicated place. It's a small place, but it's a complicated place. It's only this big, right? It's only...
2: The theory in neurology was that when somebody's brain was damaged, it was
1: damaged. Le cerveau all the experience he lives in the magazine. So if a baby only lives with pain, then his brain will be formed in pain. If you look at the brain when you're active in music, you're using almost the entire brain.
2: It's very, very recent that we showed that the baby remembers the music we presented to him when he was in the sea. Before, we thought that we would be crazy.
1: Who the hell knows what is actually living in your head? Une jeune m'a dit une fois,
2: euh, « Sans la musique, je ne serais plus là. La musique m'a sauvé la vie.
0: » Surtout quand je avec du monde, il y a comme une interaction entre nous autres, puis quelque chose qui se crée. Dans ce moment-là, il y a genre un sentiment d'apaisement vraiment f- fort. C'est comme tout le reste, est pas important.
1: Chemiquement, quelque chose se passe. know what ce que je veux dire? Comme and it could even be the, the harmonics of the chord, the, the music itself. It might align, you know, your, your brain.
0: Quand j'ai les, je pense les fils vont se toucher. Je joue sa guitare. Et quand ma tête commence à aller à gauche ou à droite, je tombe sa guitare. Si ça, ça marche pas. J'appelle des gars comme lui. Bye. Guitar. Doing good. All right. Episode 79 of See Here Podcast, Bernie and I are very, very happy to be having on a Zoom connection. We don't normally do the Zoom, but this is the first time for everything, I think. We're going to be talking about the film Tuning the Brain with Music with its director, Isabelle Renault. Welcome to the show, Isabel
2: thank you thank you i'm very happy to be here
0: (laughs) wonderful to have you congratulations on getting this new film tuning the brain with music out in a very difficult year before we get to talking about your film specifically we just want to look Mm -hmm. at like a little bit of your background so i know that you work as a professor at the university of montreal it'd just be interesting to sort of find out what are your origins with film where did you discover a love with film and where did you decide to let it take an academic turn
2: Uh, Good question. Basically, since I was very young, I knew I wanted to write stories. I I was really fascinated uh, by stories. But I thought I would go into literature or journalism or something related to storytelling. And what happened is that when I was about 15 or 16, I dated a guy whose older brother was studying filmmaking at Concordia University in Montreal. And he invited me on film sets. And I did all sorts of jobs. Sometimes I was just an extra, sometimes was doing the coffee or whatever they needed. So I started with student film sets. And then I moved on to professional film sets to make a bit of money. I would do the same thing, you know, little jobs and be an extra and stuff like that. And what fascinated me is that I, I saw film scripts lying around on the film sets, and I started reading them. And because I was in, very interested in literature, I wanted to read a screenplay, basically. And what struck me is that any, everybody on film sets had an opinion about the script. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know enough about filmmaking. And I thought, what did they base their judgment on? you know, to, to say this this script sucks or this script is fantastic. So I started bringing back scripts from film sets and started reading them. And then when I told my parents, I was thinking of maybe studying cinema, they said, uh, no, know we, no, we, no, 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 forget that. You're going to have a proper education, you know. <laughs> my father wanted me to be an economist. And so I flunked my math. I did everything <laughs> I flunked the, the final year of math. So that's super important. And I just uh, poured all my energies in reading novels, reading scripts, reading reading, reading, reading. So I did a BA in French literature. And then when I started telling my professors for my MA that I wanted to do my MA on screenwriting, they said that this was in Montreal, they said, well, a script is not a text, you can't read it. And I said, well, I've been reading them for years, I'd like to study what makes a script a script. And what is the relationship of this text to the film to be made, because that's very different from poem or novel. I also wanted to see how different it was from a dramatically from theater, I like asking myself questions i like to go in depth into things and uh, so i knew that i didn't want to become a screenwriter before i understood really well what is the relationship of the screenplay to the future film and what makes a good screenplay basically so when i saw that in montreal there was no ear for that i decided to move to paris so i got a grant and i moved to paris and i did my phd there in uh, cinema And I was in a program called semiology of the text and the image, which was perfect because it was really wondering what is the relationship between a text and an image. And I was fortunate to have Christian Metz as a professor who was a very smart structuralist a semiotician. And uh, so he really helped me through reading screenplays. And I ended up writing a PhD on the history, theory and practice of screenwriting from early cinema from Georges Méliès, Marguerite Duras and Jean-Luc Godard. So it took me, yeah, six years to write this. And after that, I came back to Canada and I decided to go study filmmaking in the U.S. So to learn the practical side of filmmaking. And I wanted to have both cultures, like the European and North American. Mm. But because I had studied so long, I thought, okay, I'll just do intensive classes. So I found a school in Maine. Uh, in the U.S. where the, it was all the professors from L.A. and New York who would come to Maine for the summer and they would give us... So I had amazing professors like Alan Arkin, for example, who was the grandpa in Little Miss Sunshine. Yes! Oh,
0: he's a yes. hero to us. We love him. Yes. So
2: he, he he taught directing actors and, and directing. Uh, so I had, anyways, a bunch of them. Judith Weston, uh, really, really great, great people. And after that, well, I started writing screenplays and I started making films. And then the University of Montreal They spotted me and they said, can you come in as a guest? And I said, I don't want to be a university professor. I really want to make films. They said, we'll let you do whatever you want. But you know, if you can just come in as a guest the first and then when a job opens, we'll, you know, you'll see if you're interested. So, a job did open. I realized actually I really liked the contact of the students, and I was doing theory and practice, so I was a happy girl. Mm. <laughs> and then when the job opened, I said I'd like to have my job to be 50% practical, 50% theoretical, because in the university world, you know, there's this sentence that you've heard, I'm sure it's the publisher perish. So, yes. I didn't want to only publish scientific uh, or fundamental research in history and theory of cinema. So I managed to have my films recognized as publications. I kind of was able to do both as I went along. But this is why it takes me much more time than other people to make films because I am a full-time professor. I have a lot of students. I'm in charge of a bunch of things in university. So.
0: Are you primarily teaching undergraduates or are you working with PhDs? Or
2: No, I work like this fall. I'm only with MA and PhDs. Yeah, I teach on all the levels, but I teach what we call research creation. So how to link research with a creative idea, a creative endeavor. The seminars I'm teaching this fall. One of them is about screenwriting and technologies, like so I, I call it expanded screenwriting pa- practices. A headset versus writing uh, a documentary project. So I, I so that's one of my seminars. And the other seminar, the students have to do something, a project that is audiovisual. So a creation. It can be a film. But it can be a montage. It can be all sorts of things, as long as it's audio and visual. Uh, so they're in the process of doing that right now, and we're going to have our final screening. Uh, December 9th and 10th, all on Zoom. Uh, usually I do a public event. Mm. but So yeah. the, the screenwriters will read their screenplays out loud. So it will be a public reading. My other guys, they're going to uh, present what they shot and edited. So it's good fun. I really wow. like it.
0: So going from your purely film background, you've yes. now gone and made this film, Tuning the Brain with Music, which is not actually your first film about no. the brain. Where do you make the step for making that the focus of your subject matter because both these films they took like Quite a few years, years to put together, yes. so you would have had to have had yes. like a keen interest. Where do you come in on making that a big focus for you?
2: I'll try to be short, love, so to synthesize. Don't feel you
0: have to be. Talk as long as you want.
2: No? <laughs> okay. So my first documentary, I, I never thought I would be become a documentary filmmaker because in school I did not like my documentary classes. I would fall asleep actually with all this voiceover and stuff. But so what happened is that I had a screenplay to write, and one of my best friend was taking care of eight men in a small village in Quebec who lived in her house, uh, who had been deinstitutionalized from uh, psychiatric wards. And they were considered the, the crazy guys of the village, you know, so and nobody would speak to them and whatever. And she said to me, and I had a tight deadline, and she said, look, one of the guys died, you can have his room. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So I was actually sleeping on the floor with all the, I mean, we each had our little room, but I was in the ward where they were and I was really scared. But she said, don't worry, we give them pills and they won't bother you. Oh, and goodness. so I ended up, you know, I would have breakfast, lunch and dinner with them. And I was writing my screenplay. And then I, of course, I became friends with them. They were fabulous guys. And, you know, the conversations were so nuts. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So the, the perception that people had of them from outside the house was very, very different from what I was was experiencing inside the house and I started taking photos I started recording their voices and making them listen to their voice because I realized they didn't even have photo albums they didn't know what they looked like when they were little and all that and after a while I said uh, well can I come in with a you know super 16 camera and I'll just start filming them but all my films have started like that it's always kind of a I come across a situation and I'm like wow I have to film this so anyways that film I went back and forth for eight years and finally I I finished it. I premiered it in the village and the villagers came to me and they said from now on every single day when I see this guy walking by my house I will stop and have a chat with him. So you know things like that. I thought this is what I want to do in life. I want to make films that really have an impact on people and not just make a film that is just for myself. And that won the best documentary film award and my producer said look you don't have the choice. You have to keep going. So I just kept going. I won't uh, talk to you about all the films but the brain aspect well this this will make you laugh but I made a film called histoire de zizi so penis stories which was really about what it is to be born male because when I was pregnant with my first child and I realized he was a a male because we saw the little (laughs) zizi (laughs) I I thought wow how did I do this you know I'm a woman how could I have made that thing Well, the thing not being my son, of course. (laughs) And so I spoke to my producer about this. I said, I'm really, really like how random it is that we are born female or we're born male or we're born androgyne. And he said, well, you want to make a film about that? I said, well, yeah, but I don't want to make like a triple you know, X or whatever. I really <laughs> want to know what it is to feel what it is to be a man because obviously I'm not. So anyways, did that and that got a good response as well. And after that, my joke to my producer was, I have to change organs. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and actually, in the the penis stories film, one of my characters said, when the blood goes to the penis, it doesn't go to the brain. And it kind of stayed with me, This. This. This image, which for a female is not that direct, and after that I said to my producer you know what I think I'd like to make a film about brains how do brains work so I had that topic that interested me and the other topic and this will lead to the film about music is that I was born in a family where everybody was deaf so all my uncles aunts cousins everybody was deaf except my dad and one of his brothers and this was a typical Quebecois family 13 kids and living on a farm and all that and so that really really transformed me because when I really realized that all my relatives were deaf. I was very little. I was about four. And I came in for this big party, New Year's Eve. And I see all these boots downstairs in the, in the basement. We entered the basement door and I see coats and all that. And I look at my mom and I said, well, where is everybody? I can't hear anybody. And she said, they're upstairs. But because they're deaf, they speak in sign. So you can't hear them. So, and sure enough, we went upstairs and they were very agitated and, and happy, and it was a fun. And I just looked around and I thought, whoa, this is something else. Since that day, I always felt extremely privileged to be hearing, extremely privileged to. My parents met singing choir, so they sang all the time in the house. I did ballet, so ballet's with the piano. My cousins couldn't do ballet because, of course, can't hear the piano you can't dance it was always a very strong thing and actually when I was doing my PhD the first part of my PhD is about silent film scripts so I wanted to see how sound was taken into account in silent screenwriting I won't go into this because this is another another podcast <laughs> we
0: might need five podcasts for this Isabel
2: <laughs> the National Film Board of Canada they wanted to, to make a film with me and I presented both ideas the brain and spirituality like how does meditation and prayer transform our, our neurons or the film about the deaf and this producer at the NFB said no no I, I don't want to go into the deaf world because it's it's not my thing uh, I prefer the the one about meditation and spirituality because she was agnostic so there I went I found researchers in Quebec in the US a little bit around the world who were testing uh, Buddhist monks and putting them in MRIs this researcher in Montreal he was putting cloistered nuns into MRIs to see during meditation or prayer how is the brain uh reacting. So that was really, really interesting for me. But I kept behind my head this idea about the, how does our brain hear? So, after I finished The Mystical Brain, which also, don't want to flaunt you, but won awards as well. So, that it's always important for a filmmaker because that guarantees you next funding. You know, sort of yes. we need these awards to keep going to get our funding. So, um, after The Mystical Brain, I had gone to so many neurosciences conferences that I knew that there were some of them that were specialized in what you call musical neurosciences. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the leaders is here in Montreal. Her name is uh, Dr. Isabelle Peretz. Uh, she's a colleague at the University of Montreal. So uh, we got together and she said, come film at the lab, which I did. And then she wrote me a letter of, of support. Then I got this big grant to do research for four years from the Canadian Research Social Sciences of Canada. So I did for the first four years, I was I did not have a producer. I was just filming a little bit, researching, reading, uh, going to conferences, just until I could grasp what this topic was about. As I said, I'm, I'm a very slow filmmaker. I mm-hmm. need to understand things Really well until I I jump off the trampoline. Well, not the trampoline. That would be a bad idea. <laughs> I jump jump off the the how do you say that the trampoline the diving board uh, the diving board mm, the diving board into about. the into the lake or the pool. So after these four years of research, I started thinking I have to find a producer. My producer passed away, and then I came across and you know people would tell me there's this guy, there's this woman. Blah, blah, blah. So finally, I found uh, Frédéric Bobat from uh, Bunbury Films, who had just won an Oscar for a Holocaust survivor that saved her life by playing the piano to the Nazis. Uh, And it's called The Lady in Number Six. So he already had a sensibility to that topic of how music can really save lives. He was super interested pretty much right away. And we embarked together in uh, 2015, and he started looking for money. And I kept filming a little bit. And so it took him three or four years to secure the financing. And I was going to film around the world and stuff. So he needed, he wanted me to have a good budget, but it was hard to finance because uh, some people would say it was too scientific and other people would say it's too much human interest. So every grant application and Mm -hmm. even all the way to the editing room, all the way to the screenings and the Q&As I've done, people alternate between, oh, I like the scientific aspect, but I would have wanted more. And other people say, oh, I cried at this scene or whatever. So that's something I had experienced with my previous film as well, the mystical mm-hmm. brain, where the mystics wanted more mysticism and you know meditation, se- seances, and all that, which I didn't put in. It's it's a pretty fast-paced film, the mystical brain, which I learned from. So in the music one, I decided to have moments where we would really listen to music and not just talk about music. And I wanted to capture as a documentarian. I wanted to capture moments where you could see people transform, because actually mm-hmm. with music, it's really fast well you know you know if you're depressed and you listen to to something where you want to dance it's going to lift your mood or the opposite you could be doing the dishes and then you hear a song you start sobbing um well it happens to me anyways (laughs) so this immediacy of music's effects on our moods is something that i was very curious about as well not just for in general but neuroscientifically what happens to our brains Mm. when we switch moods like this or when we start having memories and thoughts and, and the temporality doesn't count anymore. It's all mixed up of from where you heard the song. You know, you were five, you were in a rocking chair with your mom or whatever. So all these things, the fact that our thoughts and memories get really kind of blurred by music and all meld together, that interested me as well. So I would say that I, this film is just like the beginning of the research on music in the brain. And Isabelle Peretz, we're doing a QA this Thursday, actually. We're having a public screening and she's gonna, she and I will be doing a Q&A for viewers. So. Mm-hmm. Isabel, we had a Zoom yesterday and she said, You know that I'm gonna say that we haven't found everything. I said, Of course. This is why I want you to be on the QA with me. You know? Okay. I like to have accurate facts. I don't like to just jump on the first idea and go, Oh, this is cool. Let's put this in. Well, I I, I like putting things that are fun <laughs> cool, but I want them yes. to be backed up by science. Uh, and that's probably because I have this training as a a university professor, that I need to have accuracy. Uh, it's really important.
3: Did you find when you were piecing the film together that you were very, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it, but you were, you were very aware of getting a balance of the more spiritual aspects and the more scientific aspects. Were mm-hmm. there things which you left out? Were there things that you shot where you thought perhaps that wouldn't fit in just trying to achieve that balance?
2: Loads, loads. Unfortunately, it was a very painful process.
3: I say it's very tight because it's what an hour and 20 minutes. It was like you packed a lot in there, but perhaps, you know, it would have been, or if you'd had the opportunity to open it up a little and breathe a little more with,
2: Absolutely. with certain people,
3: certain things. So, sorry. And the,
2: the 78 minute uh, version breathes more than the 52 minutes that we were oh, asked for the uh, the broadcaster. Uh, no, of course, I could have made probably a little mini series because I had so mm-hmm. many stories and it's also because I filmed for so many years. In this situation, the, the trying Triangle between Frédéric <laughs> Bobat, the producer Carl Fried the editor and myself we would have these conversations of course to balance out okay is this too scientific not scientific enough is this too uh, not pathetic but too like woo, heavy or whatever so and yeah, I'm very uh, as yeah. much as I, I'm a cerebral intellectual person I'm also very very sensitive and instinctive and so I go into the editing room and I really want to feel what's happening and I want it to touch me if it's still touches me after months of screening well then I, mm-hmm. I feel okay I think we've got something and Carl Fried he's a jazz musician actually and a writer he's uh, he's he's writing something about Chekhov right now huh. so Carl and I had we had never worked together we're very very different but so good together in an editing room so I have to thank him for so many many solutions he found in the editing room to bring in as many stories as possible however to keep that breath going mm-hmm. and I didn't want to make the same mistake as i had done with the mystical brain where we would learn a lot of things but not experience them so for this film the tuning the brain with music i really wanted my viewers to be able to experience what it is to go into a song to be transformed by it or for example with the premature babies Mm -hmm. these babies were calmed extremely fast it was incredible i mean of course i shot more than what you saw but still in one session, the music therapist, you know, in less than thirty minutes could, you know, lower the heartbeat of the baby and really pacify these babies that are in a lot of pain. It's incredible. They're in intensive care. I mean, I could not be making this film now with COVID. Nothing sure is right. going yeah. on. I could have done, especially not going into uh, uh, intensive care with premature babies. And I haven't finished grieving everything I did not put in the film because uh, there were many other stories that were as compelling Carl and I, we love the science part, but my producer, he wanted to make sure that a, a wider public would you know, not get bored mm. from yeah. too much science and it stuff. Sure I it. love science, so I don't get bored. It's hard when you interview a scientist to not make him or her seem as if they're dumbing down the content. It's hard. It's really hard. And some scientists, they don't want to reveal what they're working on or they don't want to give you the results because they haven't published yet. So it's a balancing act, really.
0: You've got to mention that there was a lot of stuff... Like- left on the cutting room floor. And one thing that I sort of felt I would have liked to have known about wasn't in the film, but maybe came across as part of your research was about the effect of either aggressive music or atonal music, because the focus for a lot of, film, you've already mentioned Isabel Peretz, and we see it one part where she's playing Vivaldi's guitar concerto with about 10 other yes. uh, classical guitarists. And yes. uh, there's the gentle music that's played to the premature baby and yes. the, uh, the army veterans who are playing their soft acoustic guitars, but a lot of us as music fans, we always speak about this adrenaline rush for going Absolutely. to a to a concert or if you're a musician playing. I mean I'm I'm a drummer. I never feel so cathartic as when I'm just banging away bashing away but then there's also atonal music so maybe in a classical sense from Schoenberg and the like (laughs) and the film didn't sort of mention anything about that but did you do any research
2: actually that's a a fabulous question and I it's a question that in Q&A's people ask me often and I realize now that it is missing in the film that just to address what kind of music will suit somebody and I Mm -hmm. always give the same example which was one of my colleagues plays heavy metal and he says that that when he's tensed and stressed, he goes and, rr, 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 and he really has to play his heavy metal to calm himself down. Uh, so, that I learned from uh, neuroscientists, but also from music therapists, essentially. However, I didn't leave those sentences in where, unfortunately, where the music therapist explains that there's not one music for soothing or one music to be happy or one. Mu- and she says mm-hmm. it's part of the specialization and art of the music therapist is to try songs or tonalities or rhythms with the patient to see what works with them. Uh, So that's really part of their work. And that's really from the music therapist's point of view. In terms of having puts, I didn't have any scenes where people would go all out uh, with the music. So I don't know if it's because of the presence of the camera or just the locations where I went. I didn't film concerts. And every time I came and I'd say, you know, just do the music you feel like doing, revert to more quiet music. I have one of the vets who did at some point, he thought we weren't filming. And he's just walking around with his guitar. and (laughs) We had put that in at some point. And then the producer, I think it was his fault again, (laughs) who said, you know, this is kind of out of context. You know, he's just walking around banging on his guitar, but it was actually a relief for him between the takes. You know, every film I've made, and I think all the filmmakers you'll interview will tell you this, is it's a grieving process in terms of all the mistakes we make, the shots we didn't do, the great scenes that were badly shot, (laughs) or what we left on the editing room floor. Afterwards, you know, you you think, oh, I should have done it differently. But at some point, it has to end. And this film took me 10 years. So I had to, Mm. you know, lock the editing room door and say, this is the...
3: <laughs> you, you do hear that a lot from filmmakers and writers and artists that they can only see what they got wrong and not what they got right
0: because mm. they spent so much time.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's
0: understandable. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: I sort of find that one of the most fascinating things about this subject matter that you've chosen for your film. Mm -hmm. is about the brain studying the brain because this is not to belittle any other part of our physiology or any other medical professionals who may have to work on the hand or work on your legs or on your back or something like that if you have an injury but yes. the, the brain has the part that the neurosurgeons can see, obviously. But Absolutely. How, how we think what we think, no two people do it the same, whereas, you know, we could sort of say, right, in general, we have so many vertebrae in our back and yes. you do this exercise and this will happen. But how we think what we think, it's yes. incredible. So music that Bernie may really, really love may not appeal to me and vice yes. versa, and yes. yet we still have this same organ in our heads, so
2: yes, absolutely so that I was very interested in how we store musical memories, how we store mm-hmm. sounds, how we store voices. so that's why I went to interview Dr. David Popo mm. from NYU but he's also the director of the Max Plant Institute in Germany.
3: so I just want to say he was fantastic by the way. he was very enthusiastic, very knowledgeable, very personable. I could have watched the whole film just about him I was gonna say that too me too.
2: And Carl, my editor, was so in love with David Popol. so we decided to really thread through all his. And the thing with, mm-hmm. with uh, David Popol that is exceptional is that he answered every single one of my questions. And I'm not a neuroscientist, so some of my questions were way off. <laughs> and he'd look at me yeah, yeah. in a big smile and say, "Okay, let's try to tackle this one." So that's why he's he's in many many segments. Now he was extremely generous. I would have made a whole film just about him and his research. To be honest. And that was another grieving process. Carl and I had to take him out of so many or we'd have to cut short on certain things, uh, which he remarked to me. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I went to New York March 3rd, right before the lockdown. And I was supposed to go to San Diego with the film. And I, I decided my bag was packed to go to San Diego to the Mini Mozart event. And then I said, no, I was watching the news. I said, I'm going back to Montreal. So Good I, I come back. Anyways, David Popol said, oh, you know, sometimes the links, you know, it could have taken in a bit more of an explanation. I said, David, I would have put you throughout like, even <laughs> hours of you. I'm sorry if I cut you short. So yes, we were speaking about the way that music affects us differently. So the David Popo is very interested in the storage and in, in the difference between speech, language skills and music, of course. Although music is not his primary topic. Isabelle Perret's primary topic is music. And the thing is that the brain remembers and stores and depending on the association that your brain made when it heard this music, Was it happy association, a traumatic association? Mm -hmm. Was this something you were listening to so you wouldn't hear your parents fighting? Uh, Was this something you took refuge in when you had a a broken heart? So all these emotions are intact. It's quite amazing. And in Alzheimer's patients, we see this, that there was something went viral just two weeks ago about a ballet dancer who heard the Um, Saw that, yeah. You saw that. So Mm -hmm. where, you know, she started waving her arms and all that and dancing to the the music. So neuroscientists are still doing research on on the temporality of these memories because they see that the memory is intact, even if you've developed dementia, for example. But I didn't want to put those elements in my film because there's a beautiful film that was done already on this topic, uh, which is called Alive Inside. They went around elderly homes and made them playlists to see how... uh, So, Uh, Between filmmakers, I'm very respectful of not stepping on another filmmaker's feet. You know, if they've done it well, I'm not going to repeat it. There's another film called uh, This Is Your Brain on Music uh, with uh, Leviton, who's a university professor here at McGill. Anyways, um, so yes, uh, music affects us differently and uh, we store it in different ways. You
0: had that moment in the film where you'd gone and used some, what I thought was really lovely animation uh, to show, uh, to sort of demonstrate, I think, maybe, was it what... David was getting at with the compartmentalizing. It's something which I guess we've been told all our lives about how we compartmentalize it, but it was just yes. really interesting to sort of see
2: the yellow the, submarine. Well, that's an interesting research he he conducted. You,
0: sorry, for the listeners out there, can you please just explain that bit of the film? Because we haven't sort of, people may not have seen it yet, the yellow submarine moment in your film.
2: Yes. So I asked David, yes, how we store speech, how we learn to speak, how between hearing a sound and And making a a word and a sentence what happens and this is all related to my family whose auditory cortex was obviously not catching sounds but I wanted to know the link between the auditory cortex and the brain. So David explains in the film that our brains will sequence elements to the finest the plus petit dénominateur commun. So the smallest little chunk like like a syllable for example. Uh, So that's one thing and this is a, a way that the brain can sequence words and when children are learning to speak this is not David Popol speaking this is me they they skip syllables because they're they're still putting all these little chunks together and then when all their little chunks are organized well then they will say a full sentence or a full word and they won't skip syllables anymore so that's how the brain kind of recognizes sounds and words and sentences and orders them but what David Popol conducted as a research is the difference between hearing the song for the first time and then remembering it so He's done tests on with uh, people, and I don't remember the name of the machine, but anyway, was he would ask the person to remember Yellow Submarine and kind of sing it to themselves in their heads mm-hmm. while he was mm-hmm. studying what was happening in their heads. Or he'd, he'd show a slide with the, the words, the lyrics of the song, mm-hmm. and the people would not have the melody, but just the lyrics. And what his team discovered is that our brains react the same way, whether we're remembering the song we knew versus hearing it. So that's quite fascinating and very scary because it means that, let's say you've had a traumatic event. If you remember or tell the story of the traumatic event again, your brain will relive it kind of thing. But once again, I'm not a neuroscientist. So if there Mm -hmm. are doctors listening out there, I'm doing my best to explain this.
0: (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how many screenings you would have had over the course of this year, or maybe you've run it online, but have you had feedback from anyone in the medical profession, any any neuroscientists or musical therapists who weren't in your film who just were, were able to give like their critical appraisal? Was there any feedback from them?
2: The big chance I had is that Dr. Isabelle would, when I wasn't sure of what we were putting in the editing, I would check with her and say, "Is does this make any sense? Or we're twisting the person thought process you Mm. know so we were very careful with that I have to say that if some people disagreed they didn't let me know (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) Actually, in the music therapy world, this film is really very, very well received. Uh, Like I had a screening at MIT in Boston and the Berkeley Film School professors came and some of them were music therapists and they said, can we show the film to our students? So in the music therapy, and I've had many music therapists ask me if they can show them in their conferences and, and things. In terms of the neuroscientists, there are so many different schools of thought, very A fundamental research that is done on one specific thing that, of course, they'll say, oh, but you know, you could have included this research or that research. But at some point, it's endless. But I haven't had anybody tell me that the film was quote-unquote pretending to promise something that didn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Uh, Mm -hmm. Neuroscientists will say to you, or to me, they'll say, well, the music therapists experienced this in in their clinics, but we haven't proven it yet in terms of of brain research. Or they'll say, oh, yes, we have a research done on this. We have a a paper that came out uh, about this. But I would say that this film is less scientific, less neuroscientific than I was first hoping. Mm -hmm. So the neuroscience scientists may feel, uh, you know, it's a bit too simplistic or whatever. However, the music therapists say that they've never seen a film that attests so well to what they experience on a daily basis. Mm. And for me being a once again, from the university world, I wanted to make bridges between scientists, clinicians, mm-hmm. and real people. And that is always something very difficult, because there's always somebody who's going to say, Oh, but a scientist, Scientists, we, we would never say this. Yeah, so, okay, but can you just look at what happened to this patient with the music therapist? I'll see, you know, this upcoming Thursday, our crowd will be a university crowd on the 26th. Isabelle Peretz and I are doing QA. Maybe there, that's where I'll receive the tomatoes. and. The,
0: yeah. but, <laughs> you can make a nice salad.
2: Absolutely, or a great sauce, but I'm on Zoom. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> So I can let you know afterwards if you want to. Yes,
0: yes, we'd love to find out. Isabel, it was only recently that I remembered I had on my bookshelf The fantastic book by Oliver Sacks, Musicophilia. Who I can't remember the name of the lady.
2: Connie Tamaino. Yes, Yes. I was going. You know, you started speaking. I'm not a psychic, but I knew you would talk to me about Oliver
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sacks.
0: Maybe you are. Maybe you are. Um, And I have
2: his his book, Hallucinations, right here, right beside me. So Musicophilia is brilliant. But all, all of Oliver Sacks' writings. And may I just interrupt you for one little second? Oliver Sacks had accepted to be in my film. I did a pre-interview with him in New York. I spent Uh a week in New York and he wanted to do a pre-interview. He wanted to make sure I had read his books that I would would ask pertinent questions. And then his agent called me and said, Oliver has had a relapse of his cancer. I was heartbroken and I dedicated the film to Oliver Sacks because of course I saw the film Awakenings, but um, uh, it's also when I was doing the research, I came across his book Musicophilia. So I went to film in the Bronx in the hospital where Oliver Sacks worked for 30 years with Dr. Connie Tamaino, who is a music therapist who, with Oliver Sacks, worked on uh, bettering the well-being of their patients.
0: As It's been years since I read the book in full, but I pulled it off the shelf in the last week and just Mm -hmm. was sort of flipping through it just to read a few individual test cases. And one thing that I had remembered, the beauty of your film is it's showing about music therapy and how music can aid us in any number of ways. I think it was a lawyer who found that he was able to use... Uh, singing as a replacement for speech because he lost the ability to speak after his stroke and what music did for the premature babies and all that but there's a good chunk of the music book that talks about how music is at least in oliver sachs's client's cases where it added to their detriment. And there was one fellow who I think he mentions who had seizures whenever hearing music and another one who all Mm -hmm. he heard when he heard music, it was Mm -hmm. like static. It was noise to him. I mean, there were other instances where it described how music came to people's aid. And I think there was one fellow in the book, he'd had uh, an aneurysm and the bleeding in his brain had caused him long term to become completely unemotional and detached to everything, but it was only when he started to sing that the emotion came back to him. Absolutely. But but as I'm saying, there there was a good chunk of this book, and I found it frightening being as a music lover thinking, gosh, I hope that never happens to me. But music became almost the enemy to some people. So just basically, you've already sort of got an answer. The first thing that I was going to ask was, did you have the chance to meet up with Oliver Sacks? But in any of the cases that you had investigated, were there people who had music become a detriment to their well-being rather than an aid to their well-being?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I went to New York for a week uh, for uh, was called Live Arts, and it was uh, a whole week dedicated to Oliver Sacks' work. So I saw him every day pretty much, and we did, yeah, have uh, this this pre-interview that was really uh, very moving. I was shaking because he was like my anyways, he presented me to his biographer whose name I forget right now, Wexler, I think. He's a New York Times journalist. Anyways, I interviewed him. He's not in the film. Mm. But for him, music was like noise. And so it's called Amusia. Yes. So, and this is what Isabel Perez has, has uh, spent her whole life studying. So these people do not recognize melodies, and they are unmoved by music. And uh, Wexler, whose first name I forget, said that it was very odd for him because his parents were musicians and were musicians music lovers. And he said he, he was just, it doesn't affect him. So I thought of putting that in the film, but it, it kind of took a long explanation to just get to that moment. That's we were talking about what, you know, stayed on the editing room floor. Well, that was one of the interviews that didn't get into the the film, but it was really fascinating. And with regards to trauma, I met a vet at Connie Tamaino's um, at the hospital, at the Beth Abraham Hospital, who did not want to be in the film, but he helped me on On the film, he was in the Iraq War, and he was burnt uh, in public. And he said that some he has to be very careful because some musics or sounds will just bring him right back to that inferno. So when we were saying. Not be careful what you listen to, but be mindful that some songs will make you cry. Some songs will take you back into emotions you you may not want to revisit. Whereas some songs will permit you to snap out of a a depressive mood. Mm. And that I saw at Beth Abraham, where Connie uh, used to work. One music therapist, I filmed so many music therapy sessions there. And that, again, was really difficult to let go of. But I saw a woman who, she was a a poetry teacher And she lost the ability to speak. And with the music therapist, and she was paralyzed on one side. I think there's part of her story that's still in the movie. And this woman, I saw the music therapist kind of move her from one emotion to the next. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And one of the songs, I mean, she started, actually, she could sing it because that's the thing with aphasia. That's really interesting. Um, What they discovered is that patients can actually speak by singing. And this is what happened in my film with Harvey Alter, mm. who's mm-hmm. also someone that Kanita Maino recommended. It's through her that I met Harvey. Harvey was a criminologist, so he had spent his life using, you know, speech to help his uh, his clients and stuff. And one day he had a very a bad stroke, lost the ability to speak. It's through music that he I won't sell the punch for the viewers who will go see the film, but do go <laughs> see tuning the brain with music just Watch for her <laughs> <laughs> So that's very interesting as well, and this is why David Popol interested me. His, his research interested me because he's interested in how we store speech versus uh, and language versus. Uh, uh, music. So it appears that it's easier to sing words than to speak words in certain situations. So I don't know if this answers your question, but if you've had a trauma linked to where you were listening to a specific song, I, I would probably be mindful that not every song will be in a good mood.
0: <laughs> it's, it's interesting because you mentioned there about the Iraq veteran who didn't want to be spoken to. So we, you know, we've heard stories, I don't know how apocryphal or real or whatever, but we'd heard stories about American soldiers using loud music as a means of torture. I imagine that, I wonder whether music of any sort, I mean, was that something that you investigated?
2: I did go to a symposium in New York where there were a lot of American vets. It's also Connie who who took me there. That's not in the film either. I didn't hear about music being used in torture. However, there was a pilot who said that he listened to a uh, very very intense music when he was going up in his plane to go bomb. I can't remember what music he was listening to but it was kind of punkish uh, metal uh, very, very 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 yeah, yeah. intense and he said he would just kind of freeze his brain with this music so he could achieve his mission. Yeah. Wow.
0: There's also that famous scene in Apocalypse Now where they uh, they're attacking the village in the helicopter and they're playing Ride of the Valkyrie. Um, yeah. That's and that's how they got off on on that sort of thing so.
2: Yes. If I were to continue this project, I would go into these topics that you're raising. Your point is taken. Absolutely. It has to be, it should be addressed, which I didn't do.
0: Well, maybe you can make a big director's cut a couple of years from now and <laughs> release I it.
2: Wait. I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait.
0: We'll watch it again.
2: Seeing the spectator's reaction, that just definitely touches a chord in people's personal lives or personal experiences. So I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. Super happy about that. One woman came to me at, in the theater saying, can I hug you? And I'm like, I mean, I'm i am not at all rigid or closed, but uh, like, well, if it can help. <laughs> and then she said, you know, I'm a business." this person and I'm very cold and I'm not the same woman who came in that's coming out wow Wow! is there
3: any higher compliment than that that's fantastic isn't it? Mm.
2: I didn't want to press on to say you know what part of the film or whatever Mm. but I've had a lot of these returns not returns but uh, feedback Mm. that have been very moving and in the Q&A's well they'll say oh you know my husband lost the capacity to speak I I will try uh, you know singing to him and so it really relates to people but they're once again you know, so many aspects of this topic, it's huge. It's absolutely immense. And the frustration is feeling, I only touched the tip of the, it's not even the tip of the iceberg, it's the tip of the tip of the tip of the frozen piece of water that is there. <laughs> and, and neuroscientists will tell you the same thing. I think David Popol says it in the film that this is prehistoric. We're just at the beginning of research about the brain. We're just at the beginning of understanding how our brains work. So perhaps I'll make another brain film, but I don't know.
3: <laughs> in a broader sense, it's all going back to when you were talking about how you studied film. And you were studying screenplays and, you know, the idea of storytelling and writing and so forth. And mm-hmm. then you got to the point when you realized that documentary filmmaking was kind of the way you were going to go. Do you feel that you are a documentary filmmaker? Do you have any ambitions to perhaps make something that would be just a sort of a more straightforward narrative storytelling? Just, uh, you know, fiction, as it were.
2: Well, I did write a few feature-length screenplays. One of them that I did not direct. One of them mm-hmm. became a film by Lea called "Emporte-Moi," which won uh, best screenplay in okay. Chicago. Uh, won in the Berlinale Economical Prize. I wrote a thriller actually with a UK co-writer Oh, uh, okay, yeah Yes, that has not been produced yet Uh, The thing with feature films compared to documentary filmmaking is they're really really difficult to fund Um, There's not that much money There's a lot of filmmakers out there and I'm a full-time professor I'm a mom too and Mm -hmm. documentary filmmaking is much more adaptable to my lifestyle because in documentary filmmaking we can go out for one day, come home. Uh, Whereas the feature length, you know, you'll be on the film set for 24 to 32 days in a row. It didn't happen yet. I would love to make a, a feature film a fiction feature film. However, I'm not that hung up on it because I love meeting real people. (laughs) Sure. I mean, I enjoy inventing characters. And you know, I teach Mm. screenwriting, I just published a book about screenwriting, I'll show it to you later, so you can uh, know it exists. So I absolutely love everything about fiction and the relationship to the spectator, and building suspense or building character or exploring difficult subjects through different genres and all, all that. I'm this this my world. I mean, this is what I do every day as a professor and uh, as a, a script consultant and stuff. However, in my own personal practice, I feel much more transformed by going to film somebody whose story is his or hers. And I feel very grateful that they were trusting enough in me to tell me their story. And this, Mm -hmm. to me, is unbeatable. I way prefer to go out there and track stories, film people, and give it back like science. When do you go into a lab when you're a normal person? So I use my documentaries as a pretext to call people up and say, can I come film you? Can I come meet you? It gives me the permission to go speak to, let's say, those vets who I would never have spoken to in my life if I hadn't made this film. (laughs) And some of them became friends. And it's really an amazing experience to be a documentary filmmaker. I know that every film I made has transformed my view on life. It has given me other perspectives that are much more interesting than my own brain's imagination that you you rely on when you're a fictional writer so I tend to trust more what other people tell me than what I invent
3: (laughs) (laughs) when you put it like that why would you want to make any other type of film that just sounds
2: (laughs) no but honestly I'm taking a break right now but during the pandemic I uh of course as everybody else I was uh, uh, in isolation and I started taking photos of certain things and I think my next project will be uh, something I do by myself with uh, no broadcaster, with no public in mind, and just to to Mm -hmm. do something for myself without having all the pressure of having to respond to this uh, requirement.
0: Any idea what that might be subject matter-wise?
2: It's about memory. Because uh, at first... My film about the brain was was called Brain, Music, and Memory, and the memory part we took out because it became, you were talking about the fact that neurosurgeons can see the brains. Well, I did interview a neurosurgeon who was fascinating, and at McGill University, we have the Neurological Institute, and they operate, one of their fields is they operate... uh, Epileptic oh, right, yep, seizures that are awake during the operation. So, not only do they see their brains, but the person is awake and they ask them questions to make sure that they're talking. Sure, yeah, the yeah. But, anyways, that's something I had put in a little snippet in my previous film in The Mystical Brain. I used footage, archival footage from the Neurological Institute, where you see a doctor actually operating live. Uh, like in the fifties. Mm. So that's another part of it. The, the The mechanics of the brain interests me as well.
0: <laughs> Did you miss your calling? Maybe you should have become a neurosurgeon.
2: You know what? A closet scientist.
1: Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and because I was so stubborn to flunk my math, so my father would not force me to become an economist, I could not get into any science program. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. so I ended up be? going in, yeah. in literature. <laughs> but no, I, I do love science. I, I, I have to say, I don't know that I would have been a surgeon, but definitely, as I was saying, I like to go in depth in, in questions. I like to understand things in, in a profound way. And also, I am fascinated by research. I'm fascinated by what people decide to look at, You know, whether it's to put a little droplet of water under the microscope and, and see what happens. And I think that we should have more responsibility Respect for scientists, even though some of them work on molecules versus some of them work on uh, frontline uh, research. I think mm-hmm. all of this is really valuable. And uh, if if the pandemic has, has has given us something, it's maybe a bit more respect for for science, you know, in terms of research and. Uh, well, solve.
3: depending on who you speak to. <laughs> yeah, well.
2: solving, yeah. solving problems.
3: I think it's that curiosity and that respect for curiosity for knowledge and science and the respect for that. It is very apparent in, in the film. Mm. I think that comes across very, very
2: well. Oh, good, good. And I also really love people. Like I get attached to the characters that I film. Like, for example, the young kids that are homeless. I did drum yeah, circles yeah. with them, with the music therapist, uh, Julien Perrin. And Julien, he asked me to come in many weeks, you know, the whole fall to get to know these young people who are homeless. Yeah, when I say that filming uh, real people really transforms me, is once again, mm. these young people would never have spoken to me if Before I had yet. just been sitting beside them on the bus or they'd say, hey, lady, leave me alone, you know? <laughs> 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 But but doing drum circles with them and all that is, and that's what I like. I'm very, very curious about how humans think, feel, make decisions, go through rough times, go through happy times. That really fascinates me. And I want my films to be useful. That's right. really important to me.
0: So I guess as a final question to you, Isabel, what is the immediate screening future for Tuning the Brain on music? You say you have a, another Q&A this week, so another online screening, I'm presuming. I mean, is it going to be video on demand? Is it going to be a DVD release?
2: I don't know if it will go back out to cinemas because uh, we were very lucky. It was shown right before the pandemic. So we were like for seven or eight weeks at the Museum of Fine Arts Cinema in Montreal. Then it went to the Review Cinema in Toronto. I showed it in New York, uh, Boston, San Diego. But these were all punctual screenings. My producer, uh, so Bunbury Films, they made DVDs. And if you go on the website, bunburyfilms.com, so B-U-N-B, URY, Bunbury Films, uh, you can have access to the film there. It's two versions, Tuning the Brain with Music in English and there's De la Musique pour le Cerveau in French. And we still have our 52-minute version that's going to air on the CBC. So the French uh, Radio-Canada, mm-hmm. that will air in spring 2021. And for now, it looks like, and actually Zoom is great for this. It looks like the film has gets invitations here and there and I'm always happy to do Q&A's so I think that's how it's going to be going around it will have a festival life at some point
0: great <laughs> when we put this episode out we'll put a link to the Bunbury Films website oh great our, our, our listeners who've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope they have uh, will be able, <laughs> will know how to uh, how to search the film out so yeah Bernie and I found it definitely really fascinating and it's just been wonderful being able to speak with you this uh, morning, afternoon evening <laughs> That's Thank you. Thing, being on all parts of the globe. So.
2: And this is the real uh, salary for my labor is to be able to speak with guys like you and, and know that your podcast is well listened to and it will touch other people. It's always, it's always about making relationships. I just published a book in England, actually, a uh, Routledge called Reading and Writing a Screenplay, Fiction, Documentary and New Media. And so I'm very, very proud of this book. And in this book, Perfect. I speak about... About what it is to write for, you know, the screen for fiction, but also for new media, like uh, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality. And it's mm-hmm. it's pretty much, it sums up pretty much all my research that I've been doing you know, with my PhD, but also as a consultant, because I, I do a lot of consulting yeah. for other writers. And uh, so I'm very proud of this book. Mm. Is it available right.
0: in French as well? Is it just published? Yes,
2: in it's available in French and uh, in Spanish as well. Oh, it was well, translated well. It came out in Buenos Aires. And in Paris, Came out in Paris in 2012, and in 2019 I, I did a second new edition, new publish uh, a new version of it. Mm-hmm. In 2019, yeah. came out in French, and this one in English is the equivalent of the second version in French. Right, right, right. So, yeah, so it exists uh, in French. It's have- called uh, uh, "Lire et écrire un scénario." fiction, documentaire et nouveaux Média.
0: <laughs> I, I think she said something nice to us, Bernie. I'm not sure. That...
2: <laughs> it wasn't Weird. a swear.
3: Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll definitely anyway, put, uh, in the uh, in the show notes to the uh, the publisher website and so on, so we uh, okay. can uh, can get hold of that if they would like to. That's fantastic.
2: Mm. Yes, thank you. And it's full filled with examples of yes, what happens. Between the script and the film set and the director, and yeah. all Fantastic, these. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, great. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much, guys. It was uh, so lovely. Thank
0: you very much, Isabel. It's been absolutely a delight. We're going to go to a break, and then Bernie and I will be back to talk about what is happening in episode 80. We'll be back in a moment. Mm-hmm. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed our chat with uh, Isabelle Renault. I should actually sort of do one more big thank you to uh, Andréane Lorrain. I hope my French hasn't mangled your name, Andréane, but uh, she was the uh, representative at Bunbury Films, which was the distributor of Tuning the Brains with Music. And she set the interview up for us with Isabelle. So a huge gratitude to you, uh, Andréane. She was um Really wonderful correspondence. so thank you very much for that. That was just a really terrific conversation. Yeah, it
3: was great. I, I enjoyed talking or hearing about the... As, as well as the subject matter of the film,
0: the kind of process that you go through in making a film. She's very much speaking about this as a filmmaker and, and just to, yeah, yeah, to get yeah. her own background. That was fascinating. I, I love that. Yeah. I think because, you know, you were saying to me earlier on in the week, we've never sort of done something with a scientific bent. You know, we, we've yeah. done so many films that have been talking about maybe a political angle or about the uh, history of a particular band or a style of music, yeah. but I don't think we've done something like this before. So. So I'm really glad that all these films under the banner of music films can still take us to different places that we don't expect.
3: And one particularly when it's uh, such a accessible and interesting film, you know, so um, it was fantastic. Thank you so much, Isabel, for coming on and spending some time with us.
0: Indeed. So, episode 80. This is going to be the final episode, official episode of See Here for 2020. However, there will be two episodes out next month. One will be an official See Here episode, which I'll talk to you in about in a minute, but also... I've been invited to come back onto the projection booth for an extra episode of that next month. And we'll be talking about a new documentary about the surf band, The Ventures. We're looking forward to talking about with Mike White and Skiz Sizzik about uh, that documentary on The Ventures. And Mike has given me his blessing to put that episode of The Projection Booth in our feed as well. So you'll get that. But you'll also get our official See Here episode which will be number 80 we'll be talking with another director I think he's based in Los Angeles his name is Brent Wilson and he's gone and uh, released a film this year called Streetlight Harmonies now anyone who knows me knows I am obsessed with acapella and have a huge love of doo-wop and this film is a documentary about the history of doo-wop all the wonderful stuff but I believe there's a dark side to this as well so this should be a fascinating film and really looking forward to talking with brent about that film but we have a third wheel on the show with us next month i'm very excited about this here in melbourne one of our main public access radio stations is pbs fm and if you're here in Melbourne, you'd obviously know about this station. One of the shows I love to listen to is a program called The Malt Shop Hop. The host of it, Peter Merritt, a.k.a. Mr. Do-Wop, has been running The Malt Shop Hop for many, many years. And he's probably Melbourne, I dare say, Australia's foremost authority on the history of doo wop music. He just, every week, he just goes through these great songs and so many groups that I've never heard of. I mean, I've got some do-wop in my music collection, but Peter really, really super knows this stuff. So I asked him if he'd want to join us to talk with Brent about his film Streetlight Harmonies. And he was only too happy to do so. So we have a do-wop expert Bernie coming to join us to talk about he'll ask all the good questions. Yeah, <laughs> so that, yeah. that should be a lot of fun. <laughs> we'll just agree. Yeah, we'll just have, yep yep. Yeah, th- yeah. Yep. That's a good song. Yep. Yep. Agree. <laughs>
3: So, I like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> really look now, super looking forward to that next month, episode eighty. So if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email at see here podcast at gmail.com we have the facebook page facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast and there's been a little bit of activity there of late which I'm quite happy to see I don't want it to just be about me saying hey what's your favorite music related film I like to see other people getting on there and talking about their favorite music related films or making recommendations and there's been a little bit of that going on in recent times which excites me no end
3: and we are on instagram as well we are at uh, see here podcast all one word so um you can follow us on there for the um very occasional posts that i put up but uh, believe me they're worth the wait
0: yeah so hopefully you'll be having a lot of uh, neurological photos for this month, Bernie.
3: Yeah, I'm going to be posting some uh, when we finish
0: speaking here, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) Great. A lot of of photos of the brain. So, I guess that finishes off episode 79. I've got some editing to do. Until next month, please be nice to each other. Look after each other. If you're in a COVID-infected area, please just wear your mask. Stay indoors.
3: Don't be an asshole. Just do the right thing. Think about other people. It's not all about you, okay? We're all in this together. Be nice to each other and care about each other.
0: Until next month, Cheers.
3: Bye.